If you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you're visiting, there are sermon notes, you want to pull those out. I'm going to read verses 5 to 7 as the background of this text. Verse 5 says, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. And then verse 7, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Let's pray. God, use this text of Scripture that we're going to study here in a second, verses 7 and 8, and use our understanding of it to help enhance all of our service for you. This is a passage about ministry. This is a passage that gives the heart of evangelism. And I'm hoping, God, that all of us have that heart, a heart that goes with the heart of worship. The three key aspects of a Christian life, service, evangelism, worship. I pray, God, that we are blessed now in this study. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, God, I just pray that the gospel comes out and comes out clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9 is our actual text. As we come back to our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, we come back to a study of, of a text of Scripture in the last book, I mean the last chapter of this book, where the Apostle Paul is correcting the church at Corinth, the church that is in southern Greece, and as he's coming to this final chapter, he's giving us travel plans. I don't know how exciting travel plans can be for you, but travel plans, that's what he's doing. And what we're going to do is look at this, this section of Scripture that seems really simple. But what it does is comes at us in a matter-of-fact way. But when we understand the background, it's really going to help us understand ministry. It's going to help us understand evangelism. And so I hope that it will be a blessing to you. This is a passage that I said seems very simple, but I don't believe you don't want to run over it quickly. Um, this text has, I think, some profound truths in it. And it can sound um, very simple. If you would happen to know Greek, there is no mysterious like language or something like, oh, let's look at this word here, and all of a sudden it's going to unveil something new to us. I think the words do give us some deeper insight as we look at the Greek. We'll do, look at that in a second. But it's not in the sense like you're going to be like blown away. Let me read verses 8 and 9. It says, but I will remain in Ephesus, verse 8, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me. And there are many adversaries. So, boom, that's it. If you have your sermon notes that, were in the, that are in the bulletin, you see the theme of our text is a realistic ministry. A realistic ministry approach to adapt for ourselves. We know from the Apostle um, Paul's writings here in Corinth and, and, and then from the book of Acts, Romans, and Galatians, Paul was charged to take the gospel to the world and to go beyond the Jewish world that was centered in Jerusalem and to reach the Gentiles of the world, all the non-Jewish people. And if you understand that, it is an, an, an impossible task. It is absolutely incomprehensible that Paul had this opportunity to serve God in such a way as to be the foundational apostle to reach the Gentiles. 
Peter, we understand, was to reach the Jews primarily, and then Paul had this opportunity to reach the Gentiles. And you would think that he would be running around like a chicken with his head cut off, here, there, everywhere. But when we study the book of Acts, he'll spend 18 months at Corinth. Then he'll spend two years plus in Ephesus. Those are just some examples, let alone the times that he spends in prison. And you would think that God would have him always going from week to week to week to another place if you've got to reach the world. But I think we're going to see how his travel plans and where God puts him were all part of the strategic plan of how God used him to reach the world. So when you look at verse 8, do you see there's a pronoun used? For those of you who remember your English back in high school, the word I, first person singular pronoun. And Paul is talking about himself. He is just talking about himself. And I want to point this out because we all sometimes will hear the gospel and ministry is all about Christ. Absolutely. And sometimes with criticism, people will say, if you use the word I, how dare you use the word I? This is all about Jesus. Well, we all have personal accounts, and we can bring those in. And here is Paul's personal account. And it's important that we understand as we come to this, this is not a timeless specific message in the sense of where Paul is saying, I'm going to remain in Ephesus, but I'm going to come you know, basically after Pentecost, and we're supposed to wait for Paul. This is come and gone. But what we're going to learn from this one specifically is some principles that Paul has for us as we look at the situation that the Apostle Paul is going through. Now, by pointing out the word I, I want to take a step back, and I want to just have you understand why we can look at Paul's life in a historic situation and say, well, what can I learn from this? And the reason I want you to do that is I want you to understand how Paul epitomized Jesus Christ. So if you'll do me the favor of just flipping over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul gives his own personal testimony and gives us an exhortation to follow him because he's following Christ. Now, again, I'm going to emphasize that expression, Paul epitomized Christ. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. It's, not a, it's, a, it's a humbling story. It may be funny, may not be, but I hope this will help you always remember how Paul epitomizes Christ. Believe it or not, 28 years ago, I was uh, on staff at Indian Hills Community Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, and the church had about 1,800 people, and we would have a service in the morning of 1,800 and about six or 700 in the evening, and I was on staff, and I was given the privilege of being one of the pastors on staff that would preach morning and evening, and, and the only reason I'm telling you the numbers is so that you understand the extent of this humbling story, because one night I had the opportunity to preach, and I was, had this quote in front of me, and so I'm preaching, and then like been 20 minutes, and sometimes I get worked up, and all of a sudden I turn the page, and I, I read it, and it was something like this. Paul epitomized Christ. And I emphasized it again. Paul epitomized Christ. Someone came up to me afterwards and said, you know, when you read that quote, did you mean epitomized? <laughs> 
pulled out my notes. I looked at it, and I just, like, sunk. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, how embarrassing. So I've always, when I ever use that word epitomized, I always think back to that night in which I preached before, like 700 people about epitomized. And I'm telling you today, what I'm asking you to do is to remember this, how we're all supposed to epitomize Christ. All right? Because look at Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells his gospel story. He tells how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And when he does that, he's going to basically epitomize Christ. Paul, to be, the definition of epitomize is to be the perfect example. And when you come down to verse 13, Paul, after he's talked about how he's gotten saved, says in verse 13 of Philippians 3, Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He's talking about perfection and being just like Jesus. So he says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I, again, personal pronoun, singular personal pronoun, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. And then he says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. I'm going to emphasize just his example. He's talking about pressing on pressing on and following and saying, look at my life. And I, and I think I wish we could show a film of Paul's life, but we can't do that. We've got the scriptures. And we look at Philippians and we look at Acts and we look at letters like 1 Corinthians and we see what Paul is doing. And I'm just hoping that the words that he used here, God will use in your own life to keep you focused because this is a world that is constantly pulling you to live for the world and we need to be in the scriptures reminded that this mentality of serving Christ has to be our ultimate goal. And as we look at Jesus through the Apostle Paul, here's a human being saying, be like Jesus when you look at me. And so today I'm not saying look at Mike Matissick. I'm saying look at the Apostle Paul and let's look at his life. And when we understand this text, we're seeing a person that is able to reach the world. The reason I've got the world up there, because this is what the Apostle Paul was commissioned to do, and now we're following in his footsteps in our, our small part of the world. So with this, go back to 1 Corinthians 16 and understand the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is basically just telling us his travel plans. And if you have your sermon notes in front of you, you can fill in the blank with this, the big picture. It's just, he's staying to work. Look at verse eight. He says, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. And Paul is just telling the big picture, and the big picture is his travel plans. He knows he's needed at Corinth, and he's going to, though, stay at Ephesus for a time. He's not giving him the pressure to come now. Uh, the key verb is to remain. I will remain. It means to stay. It's in the future tense. It's not a prophecy like, you know, something's going to happen in the sense of, of God's divine plan. It's just in the sense of this is his future travel plans. He is simply going to stay. And you say, well, hey, um, I, 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 what, what good does this do me? Well, I think it helps us see that Paul isn't on vacation 
he, he can only be in one place at one time. He can't be in two places. And I think when we look at the fact that when we look at the fact that he's remaining in Ephesus until Pentecost, I put on that little uh, end of that little phrase there, he's staying to work. Paul isn't there sightseeing. Remember, Corinth at this time is a great place that you could vacation, and Ephesus is a great place to, to, that you could vacation. These were the premier places in the world. Remember, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was at Corinth at this time. I mean, excuse me, at Ephesus. And, and Paul could have said, you know, I'm, I'm staying here just to vacation. He's not doing that. I, so when he says he's remaining until Pentecost, I want us to remember he's working, and we're going to do a little background study to see what he's doing. So what I want you to do, if you're taking notes, I want to, first of all, give you some historical insights. First and foremost is that when we say that in verse 8, he's remaining until Pentecost. Pentecost was the Jewish holiday 50 days after Passover. And I think this is a great reminder for all of us that they worked off a calendar system. You know, just a good reminder for us to always remember these people weren't like cavemen that just went from week to week and just things um, were um, randomly happening. Paul is, is saying, look, I'm aware Pentecost is a spring holiday, and you guys know the time frame when it occurs. And so by specifically just even pointing out this holiday, he is basically reminding us that they worked off a calendar system too. And, and I just want us to remember these were real people with real schedules and real timing. There's debate as to whether... He's talking about the entire Passover holiday. Sometimes from Passover to Pentecost, the holiday was called Pentecost as well. Or the actual final holiday when they celebrated it at the end of 50 days. Either way, it ends up where Paul, I believe, isn't going to come until that 50th day. So we know he is basically saying, I'm staying there through the spring. I'm going to stay, and I'm going to, I'm going to be in Ephesus, and I'm going to be working. And we know that one of the things that Paul is doing is he's staying in Ephesus because the winter, when obviously he's staying, if he's staying until springtime, is a time when this part of the Mediterranean Sea became almost impassable because of the water that was there, Um, the, the, the storms that came up and raged the sea. And so Paul would not have been able to travel. Um, this is considered Asia. This is obviously considered Europe. Here's where Corinth is. It's on an isthmus. Here's Ephesus over there in Asia. What do we know about Ephesus? Look at verse 8. He says, I will remain in Ephesus. Well, Ephesus was a city that basically was part of a, a Greek system of, uh, of, of like 12 major cities. It was a city famous in its day for the temple of Artemis, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It is a city that was a key Roman city at this time in the book in the area of Asia. And I thought it would be interesting if you'd like to see that this is a real place. And it was historically um, a significant place to be in. Here is uh, part of the ruins that are still of, um, able to be seen uh, where we know where ancient Ephesus was. I'm trying to look at where the actual city, there's a, there's a, um, 
in Turkey, this is where, you know, Ephesus is where, where Turkey is. There's another city um, today, uh, spelled S-E-L-C-U-K. Selkuk is, if you were to go to Turkey, that's where um, Ephesus is now on the outskirts of that. Because of a river and the water changing, this area has basically become uninhabitable. And so what you basically would do is you would come and, and you would go to Selkuk and they'd say, well, I'd like to take a tour. And you can go to the ancient ruins where the streets that the Apostle Paul um, walked on. And part of this is I want you to understand is when we look at places and you, you read in verse 8 and it says, I will remain in Ephesus. It's a literal place. This isn't made up. And uh, last night I couldn't sleep and I was reading a book called um, The Kingdom of Speech by Tom Wolfe. It's a secular book. And it's interesting because he's telling the story of how evolutionists have tried to come up with the development of language. And he's telling the story in this book about how um, Darwin, Darwin started to just make things up as he was telling his story on evolution. And I just thought to myself, how ironic. Here I am. I can't sleep. It's the middle of the night. I pick this up, and I'm reading this section, and just the fact that Darwin was talking about how uh, a leopard got its spots. And, 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 and I guess Roger Kipling wrote a, a story, a children's story about this. But Darwin just said, hey, this is really good. And I'm just going to make up a story about it. And, and people buy into this man who just made up lies. If the Bible, which is often accused of just being a storybook, is just a book about um, lies and p- things that people made up, and I've heard this before, and maybe some of you have heard it, that you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they didn't write around 30 to 50 AD. They, they, these were people who just took these disciples' names and they made up stories about God, Jesus Christ, and they wrote from the first century to the second century, hundreds of years after Jesus was on earth. It's all a bunch of uh, hooey, and it's all just a bunch of stories. Don't you think if you and I were writing stories, after some time we would, we would slip up, we would make up a place that isn't accurate it isn't really there and we would maybe write look i'll remain if i'm making up a story about the apostle paul i'll 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 remain in timbuktu and you say well where is timbuktu and then you can't find it every place i want all of you guys to understand that every place in the bible that is that is um noted has been always proven to be found accurate and if the place can't be found I believe one day it will be and just as a little example if you go and you study the story of Abraham from the Old Testament for up to the 19th century it was said that his birthplace the city of Ur and you spell that you are you go back and read Genesis Abraham was from the city of Ur wasn't found well, then, I think it was in the 1940s and 1950s, archaeologists found the city of Ur. And I, I, my point is, is that these places are real places. And if people say they can't find them, I eventually believe one day they will. Okay? I just want you to know that. So I just thought you'd like to see some of this stuff. This is um, a library. Incredibly, they, they had a library there at Ephesus, and this was, building was built after the Apostle Paul, but the library, I believe, was there, and it ended up getting put into this facility, but I just want to point out, 
These people were intelligence. This was the third largest library in the modern world. I, I, the, 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 um, I think the top one was the one at Alexander uh, that ended up burning, and, and we've lost so much of ancient history when that burned. But this, this was one of the ruins. Um, this is a, a temple that is still standing. This was a, a Roman emperor that obviously um, I put up there, came after the Apostle Paul's time. Um, but I thought this would be interesting. If you were to go to Ephesus, you remember the Apostle John has a key role in Ephesus. And when he died, they buried him there. And in the 6th century, they built this um, tomb to him. Um, I just point that out again because these people are real. These aren't make-believe people. And I just want you guys to, to just always have the confidence that your Bible is accurate. They had this temple there. The the temple of Artemis is a Greek goddess. I think she's supposed to be the sister of Apollo. Um, the temple itself has been totally wiped out. I think there's only one column that's still standing. But my point is that there's a lot of little statues for, for her. And I want you to remember this as we're going to be in Acts 19 here in a second. And then many statues to the goddess Nike. So yes, the Apostle Paul could have been walking by and he could have seen these statues. We're going to stop it right here. This is a theater that it's believed that the Apostle Paul appeared to, in, appeared in Acts 19. So why don't you turn to Acts 19? So when I'm saying, okay, we're looking at the Apostle Paul working. What was the Apostle Paul doing? What was he just sitting back and you know vacationing um, in 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 Ephesus? And the answer is is no, not at all. We we know that he was somebody that was very much very, very much fit working in this, um, at this time. And so start to Acts chapter 19. And Acts chapter 19 is around 54 so or so AD. And the Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey. Some of your Bibles in Acts 18 have that heading, third missionary journey. Paul takes, we believe, four missionary journeys. Three are in the book of Acts. One is not, has to be implied through Second Timothy and Titus. This is his third missionary journey, but he's completed his second missionary journey in Acts 18, and that's when he spent 18 months in Corinth. So we pick up now in verse 1 of chapter 19. It's hap it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard when there is a Holy Spirit. So he begins this ministry of reaching people in Ephesus, and we know based upon the fact that that um, he'll go into into the temple of uh, the synagogue. Look at verse eight. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reckoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul is in Ephesus, and this is when somewhere along the line he's going to be writing this letter off to Corinth, and so he's going to spend three months in the synagogue, constantly trying to share the gospel because that's his passion. And then, verse 9, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil away before the people, he withdrew from them and, and took away the disciples, um, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrrhenius, and that this took place, here you got it, for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Because Ephesus was such a strategic place. And I told you that if I was 
Paul, I'd be every week traveling somewhere here or there. But God used him wisely to go to key cities and send people through those areas. And so Paul has all these people coming through Ephesus as well as the large population of Ephesus, and he's reaching people and he's constantly sharing the gospel. A mentality that I want all of us to have. If Paul says, follow me, in the Philippians, look, this is his passion. So obviously, we pick up in verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. He was an apostle. I get it. He had gifts that are different than you and I. He had the ability to do miracles. And so when I come down to verse 20, um, I realized God was specifically using him, and the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And so Paul was blessed in his ministry, and, and he was sharing the gospel, and people were getting saved. And here, though, when you come to 21 to 41 in the book of Acts 19, you have this story where the apostle Paul is confronted by the, the, the um, idol makers. And so what happened is um, a worker, pick up in verse 24, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no small business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the work, workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And I, again, just remind you that these were business people, no different than how we have business people today, and they go into an industry and they say, look, we're here to make a profit. And one of the things that they were making profits was on selling statues. And so verse 26 you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And I just point that out because it's important for us to understand. As you're clear on the gospel, sometimes you're going to tell people you're not to worship idols. And we live in an, an area where there's a lot of people that promote idols even today. We have an area down on Route 41, the shrine, and it's nothing but idols. And so, you know, you still look and say, well, Paul was going to Ephesus and they were dealing with shrines. And we don't deal with that today. Oh, my goodness. Yes, we do. So just as a background. So verse 27, he goes, not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. And that she whom of all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this and were filled with great rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed, they rushed with one accord into the theater. There you go. They rushed into this theater. This theater, they estimate, could hold up to 25,000 people. So they rushed into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assemblies, the, sub the, 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 the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends were sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having mentioned with his hands, Alexander was intended to make a defense of the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all that they shouted for about. You, got, you just have to laugh. I mean, this is one of the funniest lines in all the Bible. Two hours. Can you imagine? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours? Two hours. 
Try saying something over and over for five minutes, let alone two hours. These people are passionate about what they're facing. And after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all those who do not know that the city of Ephesians is guarded by the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? So, so since these are undeniable facts, okay, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with them have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against them against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. Look, they had lawyers, they had police. It's amazing how organized their life, their, their society was. Verse 40, for indeed we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is real no cause for it, and in this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And so my point is just trying to get you to understand Paul is staying in Ephesus, and this is what he's doing. He's out there, and he's working, and that was the big picture. And so I want you to understand this. When, when Paul says, I'm staying, it's staying to work, and I hope that we have the same mentality. So here's the big picture. He's staying to work. But now let's go to the specifics. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Go back to 1 Corinthians 16, and we're just going to look at the specific picture because basically verse... Um, nine gives us the details and he says for a wide door a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries and what i want you to do is just fill in the blank seeing the complete picture of ministry what paul is saying look there there is a wide door and i think from my sesame street days there's two things that don't seem to go together here and and what they are is wide door and f and and adversaries did you catch that? And what I want us to understand is when Paul talks about opportunities to work and get out the gospel, I think he's just saying there's people. And I want you to take this verse 9 when he says, for a wide door for effective service is open to me and there are many adversaries. These two things go together. And when we would say, hey, there's a wide door, I've got an opportunity to share the gospel. And if there was somebody there that was opposing us, we would say, but I, I, I had to leave. No, Paul says, no, the adversaries are there, and they're going to make it harder, but I'm not going to back down from it. And that's what I want you to understand. This is why this is such a profound passage. This verse 9 here is one that you should all star and remember. Okay, let's just break it down. Verse 9. Four is an explanation. This is why I say this is more specific. A wide, a wide it's literally uh, an adjective there, mega. It's a big door. And when we talk about a door, it's, a, it's an expression that we even use today. When you say, you know, God closes one door and he opens another door. That we're talking about an opportunity. Hey, that door was closed. This door was open. That's exactly what Paul is using here. He's, he is talking about an opportunity for effective service that's going to make an impact. And, and when I had you read Acts chapter 19, I wanted you to see there were, there were people there, and Paul was sharing. And he went from the synagogue out into the, into the marketplace, into the schools, and he just kept teaching. But then it got to the point where people got upset with him. But it didn't stop him. And, and, and it was an opportunity for service. And yet there are many adversaries, many people who are opponents, and, and I want you to think, I want you to realize when Paul goes through the experience in Acts chapter 19, 
you know, there are times when he can talk for two, three months and people say, get out of here. And, and sometimes people will let him stay for two years as they did in Ephesus before the riot broke out. You never know how people are gonna respond. And, and you could be as loving and kind and gracious and someone could cut you out of their life because you share the gospel. And, and I wanna turn to Acts chapter 24 for you to see just another illustration of another time later, a couple years later after the Acts 19. Go to Acts chapter 24. I want you to remember this because as you just look at the Apostle Paul's life and you look at him sharing, I never know what God is going to do like the Apostle Paul had experiences. And, and when Paul is arrested, and th- this is where he's, going, he's appealing to Caesar, uh, as he is being held in Caesarea, which is on the coast over there in Israel, he is being brought before a, a Roman governor, Felix, and he has opportunity to talk to Felix for up to two years. And I want you to understand how bold he is because one of the things that's so critical to do sometimes is to be clear on the gospel. And, and my point in bringing this up is for you to see how clear Paul was. So let's pick up. I want you to understand Paul um, in verse 10 says, the governor nodded for him to speak. And, and Paul says in verse 10, knowing that for many years you've been a judge to the nation, I surely make my defense. He gives his defense. He gives his uh, gospel testimony. Some time goes by and pick up in verse 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife who was a Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, just as a little side note, does anybody know where Drusilla died? She was, they, historically they know, she was at Pompeii. She was in Pompeii. She, her and her son were when the volcano went off. And so but she was Jewish, he wasn't. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, I want you, this is what you need to start. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Felix became frightened because he's clear on the gospel. Sometimes people say, oh, you don't want to tell people they're going to hell. Sometimes you don't want to tell people they're on judgment. Paul is clear. And, and, and by God's grace, I want you to see Felix will talk to Paul for not just a week, not just a month, not just one year, but two years. So Felix becomes frightened and says, go away for the present. And when I come, when, when I find time, I will summon you. And at the same time, too, he was hoping that Paul would give him money. Money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often, and he would converse for him, with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. But my point is, is that they talked for two years. They talked for two years. And my understanding here is that Paul was very clear based on verse 25. Righteousness. God's standard, self-control. Hey, you gotta stop. You gotta not give in to sin. And judgment is coming for your sin. You're gonna end up in a place called hell. People don't become frightened because you're just telling them, hey, I just don't think you're acting the best and, and you soft, you know, pedal it. He's clear on it. Sometimes I, I, I tell people very clearly, listen, listen, you have to understand you have to understand that you're not going to be going to heaven. You're, you're not, and, and you're not in. And I tell people that, and I couch it with the words, I love you and I care for you. But you have to understand, and I don't care who it is. Um, I've told one or two people, I'll let you guys all know. 
when I was in Nebraska, I got invited to go tour the Capitol. And I got taken into the lieutenant governor's house. And the governor was around the corner, and then the lieutenant governor. And then the secretary of state came in. And the secretary of state and I got into a conversation about the gospel. You're talking to the secretary of state of the state of Nebraska. And I thought to myself, here's this peon little pastor who's in the Capitol, and all of a sudden we're talking about the gospel. And we're sharing, and I went through the whole thing. He's Jewish. And I said, I know that you know the scriptures. And this is one thing I think all of you should know is how to give the gospel from the Old Testament. Because I walked him through the Old Testament. And I told the Secretary of State, the Secretary of State, what the gospel was. And I said, what you need to understand, I know you're a religious man, but, I, but based on what you've told me, you're not going to heaven. And he, obviously he's the Secretary of State, he's gracious, but we, we're going to follow up we're going to contact. My point is, I don't care if you're talking to a person that you see on the streets or you're talking to a high government official. You've got to be clear. That's what Paul did. And, and, I, and I thought to myself as I went through this passage, this is exactly what we did. Because, listen, we've got to share the gospel. We've got to tell everybody. It's the only hope that they have. And, 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 and we have to. And the reason I was reading that book last night is because he gave me the title, and he wants me to read it. It's a book about evolution and where language came, and we're going to converse back and forth. And so you guys will be praying um, for the Secretary of State of the state of Nebraska. I also got a verse off to the lieutenant governor, too. But, um, you know, and I get it. I I recognize I'm a pastor, and sometimes those conversations are easier to get into. I got that. But what the Apostle Paul reminds us all is that sometimes you're going to present the gospel, and I don't want you to back down because sometimes you get adverse reaction. Um, turn back to 1 Corinthians 16, and I, I tell you what, for time's sake, I'm just going to read these verses, and I would ask you to jot these down. Um, when you see the, the fact that in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he says, a wide door effective service is open for me, and there are many adversaries. The word adversaries means opponents, In Luke 13, verse 17, Jesus is speaking, and all of a sudden, there's people who are opponents to him, who oppose him. The same word that's used here for adversaries is used in verse 17 of Luke 13 as opponents. So we're we're not talking about people who are just listening and and they're sitting back. They are opposed to what the Apostle Paul is preaching. And in Galatians 5.17, there's a famous passage about how the flesh is, is in war against the spirit. The, the word that's used is this word for adversaries. The, the, this one I might read to you. I'll just read. If you have time, you can quickly get there. But it's Gal- the book of Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Galatians 5.17, where it says, uh, get there. In verse 17, it says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So there's a famous verse. Many of you know it. But now I want you to think of it. They're, they're adversaries. They're opponents. They're enemies. The flesh and the spirit. Well, this is who the Apostle Paul was facing. And yet, he's giving the gospel. He's not saying, look, there, there are adversaries, therefore I'm, 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 I'm going to shut up. You go to work tomorrow and there's 25 people at your workplace. And why do you have an open door? Because you've got a job and you can talk to people. You say, well, there's three or four people who hate me at this workplace. Well, the reality of it is, is, is that isn't indicating to you that you need to shut up. 
that you need to be quiet. Just because you see adversaries doesn't mean that you stop giving the gospel. Oh, I've got this neighborhood, and I've got you know, 25 homes on my block. And in 25 homes, I have an average of four people. There's 100 people on my block. But there's three or four people that absolutely hate me on my block. Well, the reality of it is they're adversaries. But it doesn't mean you stop. You don't shut up and, and, until, you know, they run you out of town. And so the last verse I want you to look at is in 1 Timothy 5.14, where the, the Apostle Paul is talking about how young widows should get married and, and the fact that these young widows um, are being tempted by the enemy. Well, the word enemy there is this word here. And, and the sense that they should, if you have a young widow, that they should get married because they are um, going to be tempted by the enemy. So all of that to say is for why door for effective service has, op- has opened to me, but don't forget the adjective at the end of verse 9. There are many. Uh, the Greek word there just means lots. I mean, where you and I would say, look, I'm just looking to give the gospel and I'm hoping for an open door and I don't want to have anybody, I don't want to have anybody be adversarial to me. So just because somebody speaks up, I'm going to shut up. No. Why are there adversaries? Here's the thing that's so hard for us to understand is that people really hate God. And, and they, want us, they want to shut this up because they want to do the things that they want to do. You know, I'm, I think one of the things that really hits me is, is Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2, are you all familiar with it? where the whole world finally says, let's, a, let's, let's attack Jesus because of the fetters. Turn to Psalm 2. Turn to, well, this wasn't planned. Uh, we'll just end with this here. In Psalm 2, so you have Psalm 1 that, you know, blesses the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners. You should all know the first few Psalms, I think, because they all, they're placed perfectly. But in Psalm 2, it says, why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We believe this is the battle of Armageddon. The whole world is turning against Jesus Christ. Then look at verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Basically what the world is saying is we don't want to be chained down anymore. We want to do the things that we want to do. And, and, and then God laughs at them. But my point is for you to understand when we talk about adversaries to the gospel and adversaries to us sharing heaven, think about that. We're trying to offer eternal life to people and you've got people who are willing to kill us over this, drive the Apostle Paul out of town, shut us up, have us get out of their lives. When we're trying to offer them the best, it's because they're so blinded by their sin that they, they think that they're in chains. When they don't actually understand that the chains that they have are controlling them and destroying their lives. So I'm messing up those illustrations there. And so today, you know, today, if you're someone that has never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and maybe you've heard the gospel, you think that you're free, but the reality of it is, is you're chained to your sin, and sin is destroying your life. And it's not doing you good. But our job as Christians isn't to say, you know what, these guys are jerks. We, we don't... We don't like the fact that they, they oppose us and they drive us out of town, we're just never going to share the gospel anymore. 
Paul continues to go from town to town to town sharing because he loves people. And, and if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know we love you. We care for you. And we're not going to shut up here at this church until they take us off this earth. So go back to 1 Corinthians 16 and just understand this. So what we understand is there's an open door. There are adversaries. That's the complete picture. And so here's what I want all of us to remember. This is what we shared before uh, in our previous studies. Each one of us has received a special gift of service. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. My point is, is because we look at the Apostle Paul and say, he's the ultimate servant. Well, guess what? We're following in his footsteps. When he says, I, and he says in Philippians 3, look what I have done. I've been just like Jesus. Will you be like Jesus? Will you be somebody that recognizes that you have opportunities to serve? And I don't know where you're staying, where you're going, but what the reality of it is, is if you have an open door, and an open door of people, the fact that you can talk about Jesus, do it. Don't look at the adversaries and say, they are going to shut me up. All right? Don't. So Paul's detail shows that it wouldn't be easy. He, he was a real person. He had real feelings. He really got hurt when they threw stones at him. And I don't know if any of you have had stones thrown at you yet. I doubt it. I don't think anyone has told me about that. But you, you never know how people are going to react. Felix listened to Paul for two years. The businessmen, though, in Ephesus drove him out because they wanted their money. No matter what we face, our job is to be like the Apostle Paul. And they give out the gospel. Lately, I've been telling you the gospel message is real simple. It's like the ABCs of language. A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was God and man, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, that he rose from the dead. And C, call upon his name. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Make sure that you tell people this message constantly because it's the only thing that matters. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the Apostle Paul was given the job of reaching the world, and he did it so faithfully, so diligently. Help us all to learn from his history, his past. I pray, God, the life pattern that he had will inspire each one of us, and that the Spirit of God will work in all of us if we're holding on to things of the world, if we're looking to just fit in, to climb the social status ladder, to be people who are just acceptable. When the Apostle Paul recognized the, the number one thing that people need is Jesus. Do we really believe that? Help us, God, to recognize none of us can change people. Paul saw people get saved. Paul saw people chase him out of town. But he saw the open door. And those two things, open doors and adversaries, will go together until the day that Jesus comes and rules and reigns. So we need to recognize that and help us to be a mature church, Father, that recognizes adversaries doesn't mean that we're to shut up. Lord, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, I hope, God, that the words of chains and fetters and, and the way sin controls them will put fear in them. I pray, God, that the concept of hell will put fear in them, but the concept of love, heaven, will bring great message of love, of how Jesus offers eternal life. In his Father's house, there are many dwellings, and, and anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. How we pray, Lord, that if there's any unbelievers here today, that they were just tired of their sin, tired of impending judgment, and tired of 
of the guilt that comes from their sin. And finally, just say enough is enough, and they'll turn and believe and find freedom in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, how we pray that the lies of Satan, that they think that they're more in control of their life when in actuality sin controls their life, Satan controls their life, will finally come off and the blindness will come off and they'll come to faith in Jesus and find true freedom for the truth will set you free. Oh, my goodness, thank you, God, on this Lord's Day for the freedom that we have in Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.